Never was anything like this seen. Never was anything like this seen. That's what people said when Jesus did what he did when he walked our world. Never was anything like this ever seen before. It's what's recorded in Matthew's gospel account in the ninth chapter, which is going to be our text this morning. And I love that declaration. It's only fitting that if Jesus is the one and only unique Savior, the promised Messiah, King, Deliverer, Protector, Provider, if He's the one and only one who meets those qualifications, it only makes sense. Never have we seen anything like this before. And what we're going to see is that's why people again and again and again in the gospel account and in our gospel account today, they're trusting in Him. It wouldn't make sense to trust in anyone else as your Savior if there had been lots of these or if there had been others who were better. But if He's the one who is different from all others and meets the qualifications, it only makes sense. People will trust in Him. They will trust in Him and they will trust in Him. And hopefully that's what we're compelled to do, to trust in Him, the unique one who meets the qualifications, who is trustworthy. And I hope that happens this morning. If you're trusting in Him, you'll keep trusting in Him. And if you aren't trusting in Him, you will trust in Him because He and He alone did things no one else could ever do, which speaks to who He is. So our text is going to be Matthew chapter 9, Matthew's gospel account, the ninth chapter. We're going to look at verses 18 to 38, so it's the second half of that chapter. And if you're going to follow my outline, my outline would be this, six reasons why the acts of Jesus are unprecedented. Six reasons why the acts or actions of Jesus are unprecedented. And with each one of these reasons compels us to trust him compels us to trust Him, compels us to trust Him. Ready to go? I hope you're ready to go. I'm so ready. I've already preached this sermon once, and I'm going to preach it again when you guys are gone. It's the highlight. It's great stuff. Great, great stuff, because we have a great Savior in Christ. The first reason that the acts of Jesus are unprecedented is because He raises and restores. He raises and restores. Look at verse 18 with me, if you would, where it says this. While he, Jesus, was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him. We're going to see that this ruler has a great problem. His daughter has died and he's going to raise her from the dead. But before we go any further, to to, to catch a little bit of what's going on here, ruler in the context based based upon what we will read, there's unanimous agreement. Uh, this, This ruler is a ruler of a synagogue. Okay, so as a Jew living in Israel, you want to go to the temple, but you can't go to the temple all the time. So what you end up doing is you worship at your local synagogue. And the synagogue is going to be the the hub of the community. It's where social life happens. It's where religious instruction happens. It's where you go uh, for most things in your life because the two are uh, essentially inseparable. So if you're a ruler of the synagogue, you're, you're a religious leader. You're in charge. Okay, but what we need to know is by now... We've seen it before. We're going to see it even today. The religious leaders aren't big fans of Jesus, okay? The religious leaders are not trending Jesus on social media in Galilee, okay? They're opposed. And so for this man to be a ruler of a synagogue, a religious leader, 
For him to come to Jesus and to kneel down before him means he's desperate. Okay? This is not what you want to do if you want a promotion. Okay? This is not what you want to do before your peers. But he's desperate, and we're going to see why he's so desperate. But I think it helps us to know that. Verse 18, saying, here's what he's saying. My daughter has just died. So he is desperate. I think it's Mark's account says his 12-year-old daughter. So you imagine. He's going to do anything. Especially if he's perhaps with his own eyes seen or heard, but certainly now by reputation, Jesus has a reputation for saying things and supernatural effects occur. Jesus has been doing the undoable. No one else has been able to do the things he's done. And so this man, yes, desperate, but yes, now coming to the one who might be able to help him. His daughter has died. Notice his faith. Notice if we keep going. But come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And I hope you're going to see the pattern. That's, that's the pattern. It's, Matthew makes it so simple the way he records it. If you do this simple act, this supernatural thing will happen. It speaks volumes about Jesus. If you do, if you speak on occasion, if you touch, you, you do the seemingly simple, effortless, because you have this power, this will happen. I love that. And you're going to see it again and again and again and again. And that again helps us to understand that, that he has that kind of power. Verse 19 says, and Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Now, we get a little bit sidetracked here, but I don't want to leave you hanging. I don't want to do the spoiler alert, spoiler alert but she's going to be raised from the dead, okay? You guys okay? I think you're okay. Let's keep moving. Verse 20 says, and behold, so there's another behold, another action thing happening here. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years, so ceremonially unclean, religious implications, social implications, She's in a bad spot. Keep reading. Came up behind him, came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart. Maybe for effect, notice what he doesn't say, right? He doesn't say, how dare you touch me? Do you know who I am? Instead, it's, it's good that you touched me. You, you apparently know who I am, right? Anybody else would have shunned her, but the one who has all the true power doesn't shun her. He welcomes her. Don't be disheartened. Be heartened. Be encouraged. I love it. And then more tenderness, daughter. So there's no distance. There's no shunning whatsoever, which she would have been used to. No, no, Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well. And here we go again. Notice the pattern. Instantly, the woman was made well. It's not magic. He didn't come up with some kind of special ointment that he was selling on the side. Try this, perhaps. After a few days, you might see some relief. No. He, he, he is touched and instantly happens. And, and we know, according to the context, her faith in him 
He could do what nobody else could do. He could give me help that nobody else could help me with. I'm desperate. She trusts in the right one, the right object of faith. I like to say that again and again. It's a good theological statement. It's a good Christian statement. Faith is only as good as its object. He's the right object of faith. She's trusting in Him, His power to help her. He's the only one worthy because He and He alone is the one who has been prophesied to do this and He's proving that He's the one. In chapter 8, verse 17, we read these words. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. See, He's the one we were waiting for that would be able to do this. He's the right object of faith. One more detail before we move on. Two different times, has made you well, has made you well, is stated. You could translate that. Has made you well is a great translation, but you could also translate that, has saved you. It's the Greek word sozo, saved. And I have to remind you again, because I remind you every week, that all of this is planned and purposeful and going somewhere. Remember 121, name him Jesus because he will sozo their people from their sins. He will save, he will deliver his people from their sins. And now this woman, Jesus says to her, your faith has sozoed you, has saved you, has delivered you physically. But ultimately, Jesus is not only going to deliver physically, he's going to deliver spiritually because it's from sin. So probably something we wouldn't catch on to there, but we should catch on to it there. Oh, this is all according to plan. This is according to pattern. I love seeing the connections. I hope you do as well. Now the transition comes. The transition in verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, the Mishnah, written oral tradition from the Jews, says you have to have at least two flute players and one wailing woman to have a legitimate Jewish time of mourning. So your friends are going to come, your family's going to come, maybe your neighbor's going to come, mourning the the loss of the daughter. But not only that, you're going to hire professionals to help you in the grieving process. So it's all going down by the time Jesus gets there. Then we keep going in verse 24. He said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. Notice then it says, and they laughed at him. It's an awkward, it's an awkward uh, thing to put it literally, but in verse 25, and they laughed at him, it would literally be, and they laughed down at him. I'm probably reading too much into it to say it was condescending. Um, to look down on, I'm not going to make that into the word study, but the idea is that they're, they're mocking him, right? It's strongly put. What a joker. What, what a crazy person. Who in the world does this guy think he is? And I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. At least for a moment. I don't want you to be sacrilegious or get struck by lightning or anything like that. But momentarily, let's just pretend. Now I feel better. That you don't know what Jesus has been doing. Okay? And you don't know anything about the context. And there's a funeral because there's a dead 12-year-old tragedy. And here comes this guy out of left field and he says, oh, you, you guys all need to leave. No more mourning. Uh, the girl's just asleep. 
And I think the right thing to do would be at that moment in time, if you don't know better, would be to laugh down at him. If he's not the Messiah, he's just a, he's just a loon bag. Okay? And I'm putting it that way because sometimes Christians are described as people who will believe anything and will believe anybody. No. That's, uh, this is the right reaction if you don't know who he really is and if he isn't really the one he says he is. So at least for a moment, I wanted to, wanted to pretend. They, they don't know. Jesus hasn't even gone into the house yet. How, he hasn't been in the house yet and he says, she's just sleeping. This gives us clues, though, that, that he, he knows things. He's extraordinary. Like never before have we seen this, these, these, these kinds of things happening, happening in Israel. So then verse 25 says, let's stop pretending. No, verse 25 doesn't say that, but I say, let's stop pretending. Let's go to verse 25. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, a a Jewish no-no if you want to be ceremonially clean, but he has the power to make all things clean. And so he does it, takes her by the hand and the girl arose. Again, notice the great connection. He takes her by the hand and the girl is raised. The girl arose. Verse 26 says, and the report of this went through all the district. It's great. It's good. You'll never believe what happened. The unhappenable happened. Jesus is so kind. Jesus is so merciful. Jesus is so gracious. To to make it even further, to quote Jesus, Jesus is the resurrection, John 11. He has the power to do this. It's no wonder people are trusting in him. It's no wonder it's the reasonable thing. If you know the facts about him, that you trust in him. Makes me want to trust him all the more. Let's go to the second reason, and the first one's the longest, I promise. The second reason that the acts of Jesus are unprecedented. Number two, he brings sight. He brings sight. We see this in verses 27 to 31. 27 says, And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Remember chapter 1, verse 1, the genealogy of Jesus. He is called the son of David. So here, they're seeing him for who he is, son of David. What is that for? Son of David would be because of the promise that God made a long time ago to David the king that one would come after him, not his immediate son, but eventually in his line, one would come after him and he would rule and reign forever. So he he has to be extraordinary. He'll be the perfect forever ruling, reigning king. Providing, protecting, and I always give all kinds of explanations because he's the perfectly well-rounded, extraordinary, kind, generous, protecting, and I'm doing it again, sorry, king. So when these people say, son of David, Messiah, special anointed one, it seems that you're the one who fits the bill. The one we've been waiting for. The religious leaders might say they were, but maybe they're not, but, but we know that you could help us. 28 says, when he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe? There's our faith, trust, rest word. Do you believe, have confidence in, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. 29, 
Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. Again, notice the pattern. Simple act from Jesus, extraordinary outcome. Otherwise, unexplainable. It compels us to trust in Him. It compels us to trust in Him. Do notice, um, I'll belabor this point because I do it so often because it seems to be appropriate. Your, uh, according to your faith, be it done to you. Don't forget verse 28 when you read verse 29. Do you believe that I am able to do this? Again, their faith is in Him. They see Him as the one. So it's their faith in Him, resting in Him. Then verse 30 says, it goes on to say, And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. And then how about verse 31? But they went away and spread his fame through all the district. So, right? I mean, it's just one of those like, what? So they, they, they believe he's the sovereign, ultimate David king, ruler, can do anything. And so he heals them and they don't believe he should be obeyed? Kind of weird, right? Strange. Now we could say Jesus knew they were going to do this. I mean, whatever. But it's fascinating. I hope they learn to obey later. (laughs) Things like this, you can't can't make this stuff up. If I were writing the Bible, if I were writing a religious book, I would would not include this kind of stuff. Right? This, This is... These kinds of things actually make me believe the Bible more. Because you go, say what? They're not very good disciples. They're not very good followers. I would only include the good ones. But the Bible, Matthew, again, is is a historian giving us what happens. Giving us what happens. Giving us what happens. I actually like it that these things are in here. Before we move on to the next one, this son of David, Messiah, eyesight thing isn't coming out of left field, out of nowhere. Um, it's actually what the Messiah is supposed to be able to do, like in Isaiah's prophecies, again and again and again. It's sight to the blind, sight to the blind, sight to the blind. So, for example, Isaiah 29:18, Isaiah 35:5, Isaiah 42:7. I'll just read the last one: to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So, the Messiah is supposed to be able to do these things. He's supposed to be able to bring physical restoration, blindness to sight as well as spiritual sight as well. Both are going to be true. He's going to make sense of things for people to bring them freedom from bondage so they can see things clearly. So all of this is on target, uh, connecting the dots. He's the legitimate one. Let's move on to a third reason, that the acts of Jesus are unprecedented. And that is because he frees from oppression. He frees from oppression. 32 says, As they were going away, behold, a demon oppressed, right? Put down, held down, constricted, bad life, difficulty, emotionally, socially, you, you name it, oppressed. A demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And, and, I, and I, lo- I, lo- I love the way it's recorded. Because I kind of want to say, well, how, how, did, how did it happen? 
Matthew doesn't say. The important part isn't the technique that he followed. The important part is, if Jesus can do this, then Jesus is the Messiah. And he did it. The mute man spoke. And maybe my favorite part where I got my whole uh, outline this morning. 33 goes on to say, And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Never before. Extraordinary. Unprecedented. Unique. And it should be because there's only one true Messiah worthy of your trust. By way of a little, little application, let's um, just take a moment and think about worthy of your trust. Objects of faith, okay? We all trust in things, and that's good, okay? We, we trust in all different kinds of things, in people, in relationships, um, in things that we do. But we, because we're sinful oftentimes put our ultimate trust in things that are going to let us down. And we have to be reminded here, there's only one who will never let you down, who deserves your ultimate trust for this life and the next. And so it's a good reminder to us. So sometimes we put our trust um, in relationships, whether it be in a marriage, whether it be with your kids, whether it be with parents, whether it be friendship, whether it be imaginary in your mind. If I only had this kind of relationship, then I could have, that's my ultimate trust relationship, and then I would have fulfillment in this life, maybe in the next. No one ever has been and done the things that Jesus did. Therefore, only Jesus is worthy of that kind of trust. Every other thing I put my trust in, I'm not saying that things are bad, God has given us many amazing gifts, whether it be our jobs, our educations, sports, relationships, all these pastors. These are all fine things to trust in, but if you give them ultimate trust, you're setting yourself up for calamity. Ultimate trust in Jesus will not let you down in this life or in the next And so may God's grace help us and the Holy Spirit help us to be reminded here there's ultimately only one that we should put our capital T trust in. And it's Jesus. Never before have we seen anything like this in all of Israel. Therefore, these people who are putting their ultimate trust in Him are sane people. They really are. Then another transition comes in verse 34. But the Pharisees said, the religious leaders, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Hmm. Just one comment about that. It's noteworthy that the fact that Jesus did these things is undeniable even to them. Even the opponents know that the supernatural has occurred. So they've got to do something with it, and they don't want him to be the Messiah. It messes their agenda up, so they say it's by demons. It's the wrong explanation, but it's undeniable that the supernatural has taken place. 
I'm going to label these, I said I was going to say one thing, two things. They're abusive shepherds. They're supposed to be shepherding the people to look to Messiah, not to themselves. Jesus is going to go on to talk about such people, but let's move on ourselves. Number four, next reason that the acts of Jesus are unprecedented and should compel us to trust in him. Number four, he preaches and brings good news. He preaches, proclaims, and brings good news. This only makes sense because he and he alone is the good one. The evangel of evangelism means good. He and he alone is the good one, so it makes sense that he does good things, and it makes sense that he preaches good news. Here we go, verse 35. This is great. And Jesus went throughout all the cities. So notice the uh, all the cities and villages. So it's extensive, it's, it's generous, it's kind, it's liberal in all the right senses, not in secret. So all, throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues. And proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Also comprehensive there. Every and every. So not some, not trying his best. No, he's the one. And so he can solve all of the problems throughout all of the region. There's no one like him and nobody's ever seen anyone like him on planet earth then and it's still true now. Notice he's teaching in the synagogues. He's preaching good news, proclaiming. He's helping them. We've already learned when he speaks, he teaches like no one else as one having unique authority. We learned it in chapter 7. We could go to other accounts when he teaches in the synagogues and he's teaching them how the Old Testament ultimately points to him. Okay. Uh, ultimately, we, we've seen even in chapter 2, even he talks about Hosea as referencing him. So I think we're on to something to say he was probably teaching a Christ-centered message about himself in the synagogues. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He's the king. He's the Messiah. He's proclaiming the good news about him. And the good news about him is he will save his people from their sins. Not only spiritual deliverance, but ultimately physical deliverance. Provision, protection, providing for. This is good. This is positive. I love it that he's not silent. He didn't do a bunch of things without explaining them. He's doing a bunch of things and he's explaining them. He's saying, I'm the king. There's, there, there's hope for you. There's deliverance for you. Freedom from oppression. And it's found in me. It's found in me because I'm the Messiah. He has a positive message. Maybe not for the false teachers, but for those who are misled by them, he certainly does. Now, before we move on, to, we need to shore up some categories. And I've done this before, but I'll do it again this morning. We have to think in terms of Jesus is the king. He proves he's the king. He does king things. Okay? He, he does new creation things. But he is going to go then and be crucified. He then is going to be raised from the dead and he's going to ascend, promising to come back. And so we step back and say, how does all this work? Kingdom, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Did you see the news yesterday? Doesn't seem like a kingdom. Doesn't seem like perfect forever ruling and reigning, perfect equity on the earth. Doesn't seem like it to me. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 says, all those who are in Christ, united to Christ, united to Messiah, the King, are new creations. 
old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And I go, huh? I looked in the mirror this morning and it didn't look like new things have come. (laughs) It just looks like a bunch of old things keep coming. (sighs) So what we end up doing with categories is we step back and say, if you're trying to make some sanctified sense out of all of this, he is the king, he proved he's the king, he did king things by way of preview. Okay? Or if we talk about the kingdom, we say his kingdom has been inaugurated. We belong as kingdom citizens with a dual citizenship because we're still strangers and aliens. But we're kingdom citizens. Kingdom inaugurated, but not consummated. And I'm not playing word games. This is a pretty common way theologians explain this, Bible teachers explain this. In the old, you're longing for the day waiting for him to come and fix things. He comes and proves that he is the one who can do that. But even in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul, we're back to longing for the day when he returns and truly, genuinely, in our experience, makes all things new. So that's why, again, in theology, sometimes we're looking for categories we say already and not yet. There's a sense in which All things are made new because I'm in Christ. I'm united to Christ. But until I see him, 1 John says, I won't be made like him. I'm waiting to be fully experiencing all that is mine in Christ. And you say, that seems like wishful thinking. Actually, it's not wishful thinking because we have a confidence in a bodily resurrected Savior. If he stayed dead, I'd say all the things I've been telling you are word games. But if he's raised from the dead, they're not word games. He's ascended ruling and reigning at the right hand of his father. By the way, that's kingdom talk. But we are awaiting his return for the consummation of his kingdom. So I hope you find that about as fascinating as I do. Second Corinthians 5.17. I've mentioned it multiple times in our series, but I keep going back to it because I learned it first out of context as a new Christian. But it really is profound and, and awesome. Already not yet stuff. If you're in Messiah, united to Messiah, the one we're learning about, you're a new creation. You're part of the new creation. Again, you don't feel like you're part of the new creation, but you are because of your union with Christ, waiting to fully experience it. Again, already not yet. Maybe another text would be, I mention it quite often, and also in Romans 8, it says we're glorified, but we're not glorified. But we're as good as done glorified because we're united to Christ who is. Let's move on to number five and six. The next reason that uh, the acts of Jesus are unprecedented. Number five, he is the good shepherd king. He is the good shepherd king. 36 says, verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. A great word that he uses that's vivid. He didn't have a, a smile on his face, right, with some political kind of agenda like maybe religious leaders would have. Matthew's describing him as having compassion in, in, in the very innermost being of his person. So think authenticity, not fake. As genuine as genuine can get in his heart of hearts, if you will, is my language. Because they were harassed and helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. So harassed and helpless, they're abused by religious leaders in our context, I think, and Jesus has compassion for them. 
Jesus has authority not like theirs. He has authority that's actually for their good, not to take their goods. He has compassion. Three, different, three more times he'll be described this way. I think Jesus is the only one described this way. I could be wrong, but off the top of my head, last time I checked, he's the compassionate one. Chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 20. And I don't know about you, but it makes me, it makes me love him more. It, it confirms and affirms my trust in him. Lots of bad actors in the world. Notice I point over here. Um, lots of bad actors who do bad things, sometimes in the name of God. Some of them are in our chapter. Ultimately, worthy of my trust is the one who is different from everybody who's ever walked on planet Earth. The one who has sincere, genuine care and compassion. The one who can deliver. One more thing before we move on, and that would be a cross-reference to the book of Numbers. I'm going to go to Numbers chapter 27. You don't need to. You can just listen. But I want to connect some dots for you. Jesus sees these people. He cares for them, and he cares because they're like sheep without a shepherd. That's Old Testament talk for the people of God. The people of God multiple times in the Old Testament are referred to as sheep or like sheep without a shepherd. Okay? So in Numbers, I want to make some connections and, and point some things out to you in Numbers 27. But before, if some of you are turning there, just to give you a little bit of time, in case I didn't mention it, I may have, I don't know. Memory is not part of new creation, already not yet. <laughs> Inaugurated, not, not consummated. <laughs> Again, king, but king conjures up all kinds of bad ideas in your head if you know anything about history because we've never, we've never had a perfect king even if we've had some good ones on planet earth. He's the king Messiah who also at the same time is a shepherd who cares. So it's a good image to have both of those ideas in mind, right? David prefiguring these things. He's the ultimate one who is a king but he cares, provides, protects. He's the king shepherd. He's the Messiah shepherd. Now, numbers is fascinating because in Numbers 27, promised land is on the horizon. But Moses, he's a shepherd of sorts. Moses, the one who's to shepherd the people of Israel, can't bring, he can't shepherd the people into the promised land and bring them rest. He's disqualified. Okay? And if you know, I'm, I'm making connections because in the Sermon on the Mount, there's comparisons from Moses to Jesus. And I'm going to make connections here as well. Moses is the kind of shepherd that's not qualified to bring the people into rest. Jesus is the right kind of shepherd who's qualified to bring the people into rest. And I don't think it's a mistake. Numbers chapter 27, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abarim and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people. Which is a nice way of saying you're going to die. You are not going to shepherd the people into the promised land as your brother Aaron was. Verse 14 says, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of, wilderness of Zin, when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes, these are the waters of Meribah, of Kadesh, and the wilderness of Zin. In other words, you're not qualified. Verse 15, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. 
who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as a sheep that had no shepherd. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus uses that kind of verbiage. I think God is the author of all history and even pre-Genesis 1-1, there was a purpose and a plan that would culminate in Jesus being the shepherd, the Messiah. And as Moses was not qualified to lead the people into the promised land as their shepherd and lead them to temporal, temporary rest, Jesus, the ultimate good shepherd, king, deliverer, is qualified because he did not disqualify himself because of his sin. He's qualified to lead his people into the promised land and give them the ultimate rest, which is salvation. He came to save his people from their sins and to give them rest and deliverance. If you didn't come here for anything else today, you came for that as far as I'm concerned. I love rereading the Old Testament going, oh, there was a plan. Oh, there was a purpose. Ah, I see shadows that perhaps I didn't catch the first time. Hmm, fascinating. Fascinating. In my notes, I say you are welcome, but I won't say that to you in service. <laughs> it is why I like to hang around other Christians who are older than me and who perhaps have learned a thing or two more than me and in fellowship with younger Christians and older Christians because you say, oh, you know what? You're, you're not reading something into that. There's actually a parallel, but I hadn't thought about it before. Hmm. It's nice to know we're not the only Christians. It's not, nice to know we're not the first Christians. Okay, finally, the next reason, the final reason, number six, that the, the acts of Jesus are unprecedented, and that's because he is the great Savior. He is the great Savior. Verse 37 says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful. That's where I got the idea of great. The harvest is great. It's, it's, it's massive. It's going to be the massive harvest. It's going to be huge. Well, if it's going to be a huge harvest, you have to have a huge Savior. You have to have a great Savior. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. So the first thing I want us to see, and I know it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a preview of chapter 10, so we're going to get into it next week and, and now sending out the disciples. But for now, let's not miss the obvious if it's a plentiful, bountiful, massive harvest, that should cause us to realize, oh, he must be a great, great king. If he's talking about the same things, right? People have come to see, see what he does. He's proven it to them. They trust in him. He's proven it to them. They trust in him. He's proven it to them. They trust in him. That's been the pattern. And so in context, I think that's what he's talking about here. You know what? There are many, 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 many people who are going to learn about me. And trust in me. The harvest is massive. I'm the Savior of the world. I'm the one and only Savior, Jew and Gentile for that matter. And so pray. Pray that the one who's in charge of that harvest, the Lord of the harvest, will raise people up. And by the way, if they started praying right then, they're going to get answer to their prayer in the next chapter because they're going to get sent out. But it obviously would go beyond that by way of implication. 
It would. So I'm mainly saving that for next time. But I'll just ask you this question. If it's God's harvest, why does he need human beings to be involved like these disciples? I don't know. Because he wants to, right? He, he wouldn't have to. If God wanted to do it a different way, he could, do, he could do it a different way. But for whatever reason, God's good pleasure, ultimately, he's going to use not only Christ himself doing these things, he's going to send out his disciples to proclaim the good news, not about themselves. The good ones, no. They're going to proclaim the good news about the Messiah, and God is going to draw many, many more disciples. We're ultimately headed for the Great Commission by extension here. Why does God do the things He does? I don't know, but He's going to. And so He says, pray. Pray that there would be people who would be raised up. Now, by extension, in our day, I think it's at least good for us to know that we, we're kind of in the same business by extension through the Great Commission. Right? There are many people in this world who need to know about Christ. And so what do we do? We tell them. And there are many people who need to know about Christ, so we pray that there would be people put in their lives, that God would send people, that God would raise people up, because we know, Romans 10, faith comes by what? Faith comes by hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ, the good news about Him being the King, the Messiah. Trust in Him. He can save you. He saves His people from their sins. So we're, we're carrying the torch, if you will, or the baton, I should say. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Romans 10 says, how will they know without a preacher, a proclaimer? God could do it differently, but he's chosen to use human means. People like us telling people the good news about Christ and his kingdom, forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration, hope, glorification. And we tell them, will they all believe? No. But faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So I preach Christ to everybody I possibly can, knowing that God uses means. And he's the Lord of the harvest. I'm not trying to be the Lord of the harvest and do it my way. I'm not trying to convert anybody. Hopefully you're not either. History's filled with bad preachers who tried. But we do proclaim the good news about Christ. We proclaim him and his message. And we trust the Lord of the harvest to take care of the harvest. It's ultimately in his hands. Hope you're encouraged. I hope you're encouraged to look to Christ. Ultimately, at the end of the day, this is what will matter forever. There are a lot of problems in the world. There are a lot of problems in our lives. And they will not end until Christ returns ultimately. And so the best thing I can do is to keep pointing you to the one who is indeed the one who can save you, who can rescue you, who's the good shepherd who will never manipulate or try to do something bad to you. Look to Christ, ultimate T, trust, ultimate F, faith. Look to him, look to him, look to him, and that'll help you to live a life in this world that is honoring to him. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is our great king, and we long for the day when he will return and he will make all things that are wrong right. And we're thankful that we have such a confidence in him. In the meantime, we long for men and women and boys and girls to trust in him so that they would be not only reconciled to him, but reconciled to one another. We know it's the only ultimate answer for peace, to look to the Prince of Peace, in whose name we pray, amen.